This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Here's a question for you right off of PRI.org. Have you ever heard of National Brotherhood Week? If you are of a certain age, it will ring a bell right away. If it doesn't ring a bell and you Google it, you'll see a video of a man in a coat and tie sitting in front of a piano circa 1962. You will have stumbled into Tom Lear, math professor turned musician slash satirist who was mocking the idea of National Brotherhood Week back in the 60s on I don't know which television show it was. He was all over the place. His albums, and I think there were several of them, are considered uh, satirical classics. Although, as I understand it, his sum total of musical output were 37 songs. I guess that's enough for three albums. I was over at uh, Sutter Hospital in Sacramento last week, uh, keeping a friend of mine company as chemicals were being pushed into him. This was being done for therapeutic purposes. I think the subject of Tom Lear came up as we stumbled upon his, another one of his classics, The Vatican Rag. I believe, Mr. Miller, we have played it on this show in the past. Well, I think I know what our outro music for this segment's going to be, but I got curious. My friend asked me, was that a thing? National Brotherhood Week? And by the way, that, that expression, is that a thing, is something we wholeheartedly endorse coming from the millennial generation. Very succinct and to the point. Okay, boomer. <laughs> My response was that I always assumed it was, that there was such a thing. Obviously, he was playing off of an entity that existed, but I didn't know that much about it then and still didn't know much about it. So I looked it up. That's when I stumbled upon the story in PRI.org, which I think is worth sharing. It turns out that National Brotherhood Week was celebrated for decades in the United States, particularly in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Historians say it had an impact on the way Americans think of themselves. Brotherhood Week had its roots in rising anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic, and anti-Jewish sentiment in the 1920s. To counter that narrative, a group formed in 1927 called the National Conference for Christians and Jews— It had the aim of combating the hatred and intolerance they saw around them, specifically religious intolerance. The NCCJ came up with an idea for a traveling roadshow called the Tolerance Trio, essentially a priest, a minister, and a rabbi. And yes, we realize that sounds like a setup for a joke, but that's what they did. Article quotes Kevin Schultz, professor of history and religious studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago, is saying they would travel the country, rent out halls, and talk about the stereotypes of Jews being overly interested in money and Catholics wanting to overturn democracy, etc. They would make jokes. It was entertainment. People would learn how false these stereotypes were, and they would preach tolerance. It's noted that these traveling tolerance trios were a novelty for those Americans who had never seen a rabbi or a priest in person let alone three clergymen on one stage joking around with one another. Ronit Stahl, a historian and author of a new book, Enlisting Faith, How the Military Chaplaincy Shaped Religion and State in Modern America, says the idea was to model for the rest of America how people of different faiths could encounter each other respectfully 
and showed that these were three equal religions. Not everyone approved, of course. Stahl said some people were suspicious of this type of interfaith engagement, but for the most part, it was popular. It was so popular that it spawned three more of these trios, which ultimately led to the creation of a National Brotherhood Day in the 1930s. It was time to coincide with George Washington's birthday to underscore the Americanness of the day. So there you go. You may want to mark on your calendar, February 22nd, George Washington's birthday, pencil in Brotherhood Day. This is something we think America could use right now. Fact is, by 1936, Brotherhood Day got expanded to a week, with President Franklin Delano Roosevelt being named the first honorary chairman. In fact, he gave a national radio address on February 23rd of that year to mark the day. The origins of Brotherhood Week had something to do with countering the image of the U.S. as a country exclusively for white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. As the U.S. was looking toward World War II, the campaign helped unite the country, projecting an image of Americans as tolerant and freedom-loving in contrast with the Nazis and fascists they were fighting overseas. After the war ended and the Cold War began, Americans saw themselves as a people of faith and fairness, fighting godless communists in the Soviet Union. As part of that narrative, there were posters, billboards, comic books, and songs, all to promote tolerance. Frank Sinatra even starred in a 10-minute movie, The House I Live In, in which he talks to a group of kids about tolerance. He won an honorary Academy Award for it back in 1946. The Ad Council, which was responsible for the Smokey Bear campaigns, among many others, took on National Brotherhood Week as one of its main causes in the 1950s. The article notes that National Brotherhood Week was conceived as a way to promote harmony among Protestants, Catholics, and Jews. It didn't address other faiths, at least not at first. And it didn't take on the issue of race in any significant way for a long time. Said Kevin Schultz, smoothing over religious differences seemed an easier way to talk about intolerance. Kevin Schultz said, smoothing over religious differences seemed an easier way to talk about intolerance. But that may have something to do with why National Brotherhood Week faded from view. It officially died in the early 2000s. But some say it lost its relevance by the 1960s in an era of civil rights. And it was increasingly ridiculed as ignoring the realities of life in America. I have to imagine that Tom Lear's satirical song didn't help. Wickedly funny though it may be. Ronit Stahl said that National Brotherhood Week had an impact, perhaps its greatest success was to create an aspirational vision of America as a religiously diverse space. And the article notes the fact that the country embraced it for decades says something about the way Americans want to think of themselves, even if, even now, it's not quite true. Now, because it's a barn burner of a good song, we'll, we'll play it in it, almost its entirety, I hope, at the break. I really do think that Donald Trump's America probably could use something like National Brotherhood Week, And sadly, that means we are standing on the high dive, looking down at the deep end of the Trump pool, preparing to take yet another plunge. For this, we will use something we've been sitting on for a month. It was from The Week magazine, their frequently excellent section titled The Last Word, took a look at the making of Trumpism. This was, in fact, an excerpt from a story that originally appeared in Politico magazine. 
The piece starts off looking at Donald Trump's impeachment and notes that, traced back to its roots, this is a crisis entirely of his own creation. It notes that Donald Trump came across a sketchy scrap of information, a debunked piece of Russian propaganda related to Ukraine, and he saw it as something he could use, something to help himself and to hurt an opponent. He latched onto it, pumped it up, and passed it along. Anyone wondering how the president could make this kind of mistake, asked the piece, has missed something important about Trump's rise. For as long as he's been in politics, in fact, for even longer, he has been a ruthlessly effective practitioner of the art of parroting others' most provocative, salacious ideas. You know, quote, there are a lot of people that think, unquote, or, quote, that's what I heard, unquote, or, quote, some people even say, unquote, this gossipy Trump M.O. was a staple of his campaign, propelling his historic victory, but it has also driven the scandal that has consumed his presidency. I would like you to find out what happened with this whole situation with Ukraine. They say crowd strike, he said on the now well-known call last July with Ukrainian President Zelensky. Notes this piece from Politico, if what he was referencing sounded kind of like a dodgy talk radio rant, that's not an accident. It's a deliberate tactic, one that Trump was developing and exploiting from the moment he first seriously started to consider a run for the White House. That's quite a claim they're making. Let's continue. In the early to middle part of the previous decade, Trump's proto-political operation was essentially a two-man team. There was Roger Stone, now a felon, and there was Stone's protege, Sam Nunberg. One of Nunberg's self-appointed tasks was to help Trump understand what the masses on the right really wanted. And one way he did that was by listening to Mark Levin's increasingly popular radio show. And I want to stop right there and apologize to listenership for the fact that we try and keep up on political events right now. And I think this article is, uh, is on the money. Uh, despite that fact, I don't believe we've said much about, if anything, Sam Nunberg, or Mark Levin on this show previous to today. So rest assured, before we're done, we'll have a few things to say about both. Continuing with the piece, the people who were tuning in most intently to Mark Levin, or so Nunberg thought, were the people most likely to vote for Donald Trump if he launched an actual bid. Trump, Nunberg told me, meaning his victory, would never have happened without Mark Levin. We are doubly embarrassed by our previous omissions of any discussions of Mr. Levin by the fact that here we are doing some version of talk radio, ignorant about this other person doing another version of talk radio. Continuing, Nunberg's frequent emails to Trump sent via an assistant in Trump's office were accounts of the many grievances that animated Levin and his listeners. Union members resented union leaders. The Republican rank and file loathed Republican elites. Amnesty for immigrants, an absolute no-go. Trump, Nunberg stressed when they talked, didn't want to be told what to say, but Nunberg nevertheless made his pitch for him as an insurgent outsider, telling him, this is all marketing and you're a great product in a new type of market, saying to Trump, help me help you sell gold to these people that normally buy gold. Trump started listening to the show. 
He would call me up sometimes, Nunberg recalled. Oh, did you, did you hear what Levin said? For the better part of the past half century, Trump has extracted from an array of similar sources, from the New York Post's dishy page six, which he was frequently featured on, to the toxicity of Twitter, to far-right websites and lowbrow TV. He developed a knack for knowing what people want. Not all people, but many people. And not what they say they want, but what they really want. Plain talk to the point of crude talk, conflict. Pat Cadell described Trump to the author of the piece as a creature of feel, a visceral stimulus creature. Trump would repackage what he took in and sell it back to the hoi polloi. For example, in 2010, he recognized a lightning rod issue, torquing emotions, and he jumped right in with an offer to purchase the site of the so-called Ground Zero Mosque, which alerted him to the potency of anti-Obama birtherism, which paved the way for his anger-girded, fear-mongering presidential candidacy. Trump is in this way less a thinker and more a megaphone, an amplifier of the ideas of others. The value of those ideas, in his mind, is based not on veracity so much as utility. Which is another way of saying he's not so much a leader as he is a follower, perhaps the ultimate follower. By the way, I should point out what I've skipped over. The the author of this piece in Politico.com is a Michael Cruz. And as Mr. Cruz, who quotes... Alan Marcus, former Trump publicist, is saying, Donald was never a CEO. He was a brand manager. It's like Elmer Gantry. It's the carnival barker. It's what every pitchman has always done. Tell the people what they want to hear. Former Trump casino executive Jack O'Donnell described it as taking the information he wants or needs, whether it's true or not. Former Trump organizational exec Barbara Rest described it as taking it in, sending it out over and over again and again. Said Michael Cruz, starting in the 1970s, Donald Trump learned how to fight dirty and win from his antagonistic attorney and mentor, Roy Cohn. In the 80s, he learned from Roger Stone and from watching George Steinbrenner, Ed Koch, and Ronald Reagan. Cruz editorializes that Ronald Reagan spent the decade of the 1980s blurring the lines between politics and entertainment wondering at times how anybody could be an effective president without having been an actor first. In the 1990s, Trump learned from watching Ross Perot run for president and lose and Jesse Ventura run for governor and win. He watched Newt Gingrich weaponize words in the political arena in a new and virulent manner, labeling Democrats traitors and sick and urging his fellow Republicans to do the same. In 2011, Trump seized... In 2011, Trump seized upon the birtherism campaign and began to wage what was the distillation of his scattershot, resolute education as a kibitzer, the gossip hound, the insurgent outsider, the nascent politician, the feeder off the fever swamps, the follower. He said on Fox News in March of that year, I'm starting to wonder myself whether or not he was born in this country. He doesn't have a birth certificate. The next year on CNN, he said, a lot of people do not think it was an authentic certificate. Was it a birth certificate? You tell me. That's what he told ABC News the next year. It was in 2013 that Sam Nunberg arranged for Donald Trump to make his first Mark Levin radio show appearance. Trump delivered to Levin's listeners what they wanted, 
which essentially was Levin's ideas, studiously collected by Sam Nunberg, consumed by Trump, and regurgitated back to the host. Saying in the end, I'm extremely impressed with what you're doing. You have a great show, said Donald Trump. I'm always listening. When Trump took his campaign on the road, he used a method which I can recall (laughs) being described by Groucho Marx. When the Marx Brothers came up with a new show, they would take it around the country and play it to various audiences. They would try out the various jokes. The ones that didn't work, they tossed. The ones that did, stayed. Pollster Pat Cadell described the process. Trump would put forth his positions or his feelings, and he would judge the level of response to it. That helped him organize, I suppose, said Pat Cadell, to whatever degree it was organized, his views about issues. Things that didn't go over disappeared. Things that did stayed. Twitter increasingly served a similar purpose. Said Pat Cadell, he glommed onto it like it was an oxygen source. And he would tweet what he believed, and people would retweet or answer or whatever, and it was kind of an ongoing focus group. He loved it, said Sam Nunberg. He doesn't trust the political people who do the focus groups. Instead, he would ask, what are we getting the most retweets on? The piece concludes by noting that if Trump began his political ascent as a follower, cannily co-opting the ideas that resonated with certain segments of the electorate, in doing so, he clearly has proceeded to forge a following of his own. He's become a leader of those who are willing to be led in this way, solidifying lockstep support from the agenda-setting base of his party, as well as its kingpins and figureheads who paired him the way he once did Mark Levin. And yes, I've gone on at great length about this piece from Politico.com because I think this is being overlooked by people who look at politics. People can't understand how it is Trump has this base. It seems clear from this astute analysis that Trump went out and found a base and built himself upon it. The result is a crescendoing feedback loop in which followers are leaders and leaders are followers, perpetuating ideas based on what works rather than what's real. Presidential historian Douglas Brinkley has said one of the sacred principles in U.S. history has been that presidents are supposed to tell the public the truth, to which I say, ha, nevertheless, it's a nice idea. Said Brinkley, so this is a new kind of Republican that refuses to ever admit culpability or a mistake and is willing to destroy not just institutions, but fact-based thinking, empirical thinking. Trump, he doesn't care whether it's true or not whether it destroys somebody or not. There's no morality in it. It's just a strange, weird bit of information, and it helps me, and I'm going to propagate it. Now, as promised, this leads us to have to say a word or two about both Sam Nunberg and Mark Levin. According to Wikipedia, sometime after 2008, Sam Nunberg ran into some Republican operatives working on that issue of the Park 51 mosque. He volunteered for the effort and met political operative Roger Stone, whom he is described as his mentor and, quote, surrogate father, unquote. Nunberg's been up and down with Trump, despite his important work for him, getting him on Mark Levin, etc. He began working for Trump as a political and public affairs consultant back in 2011. After Trump decided not to run for president in 2012, Nunberg assisted in the writing of Trump's 2011 speech at the Conservative Political Action Conference. 
In February of 2014, Nunberg was fired by Trump after he arranged a BuzzFeed interview that ended up being highly critical of Trump. The headline was, 36 hours on the fake campaign trail with Donald Trump. But wouldn't you know it, Trump rehired him in April of 2014, and he became Trump's first full-time hire for the Donald Trump for President 2016 campaign. But again, he yo-yoed with Trump. He left the campaign in August of 2015 after continuing tensions with Corey Lewandowski. In March of that year, Nunberg endorsed Ted Cruz for president, saying Trump does not have a coherent political ideology. In July 2016, Trump sued Nunberg for $10 million, accusing him of violating confidentiality agreements by leaking information to the New York Post. In a legal response, Nunberg said that Trump might have illegally funneled corporate money into his campaign. In 2018, Nunberg got subpoenaed to testify before Robert Mueller's Russia investigation. He said he wouldn't comply, but on March 9th of that year, he did. And regarding the Mueller investigation, if you're keeping score, when Nunberg was asked whether he believed that the special counsel may have something on Trump, he responded, I think they may, adding, I think they may have done something during the election, but I don't know that for sure. He also said, I have no knowledge or involvement in Russian collusion or any other inappropriate act. Donald Trump won this election on his own. He campaigned his ass off, and there is nobody who hates him more than me. Oh, and regarding Trump's former foreign policy advisor, Carter Page, Nunberg has said he believed that Carter Page did collude with the Russians, which was central to that Steele dossier, was it not? Well, we're not going to review all that. And in fact, because we've eaten so much time talking about all this, we're going to defer talking about Mark Levin, a worthy topic, but we're just not going to get to it today. Well, I can't resist one quote or two. Back in August of 2018, Mark Levin stated that Robert Mueller is a greater threat to this republic and constitution than anything Vladimir Putin did during the campaign. When Mueller released his report summarizing the findings of his special counsel probe into Russian interference, Levin called the report crap and complained that Obama was not interviewed in the probe. He said that Trump could not have engaged in obstruction of justice because the probe should never have happened. You know, I want to pause at that point and state for the record that, you know, not all people that do talk radio are that illogical. We did note in the wake of our discussion on last week's program about how the BLM was out there bulldozing forests that uh, a news report has surfaced in the meantime wherein the BLM is trying to explain their actions. They have announced that they are funding 11,000 miles of strategic fuel breaks in Idaho, Oregon, Washington, California, Nevada, and Utah in an effort to help control wildfires. The article on this notes that some scientists debate the effectiveness of fuel breaks, raising questions about whether such efforts are worth funding. But the BLM, for its part, reports that assessment of more than 1,200 fuel breaks found that 78% of them helped control wildfires and that 84% of them helped change fire behavior. And you know, they raise a good point in here. If fires are behaving bad, don't you want to reach out and try and change their behavior? According to their news release, the Bureau of Land Management has extensively documented that fuel breaks and other types of fuel treatments are effective. We kind of suspect that the early article which we cited wherein people were claiming they were going to bulldoze these forests to create more grazing land for cattle might be more central to the truth. We'll stay on it. 
Speaking of wildfires, I'm taking a look at a summary of the various Democrats running for president. We do have a big primary coming up on March 3rd here in California. The aim of that was to give California a bigger voice in selecting some of the candidates that the major parties choose. You know, I don't want to seem overly flippant about it, but you know, looking at this summary here, it does appear to me that all of the major Democratic candidates who have put an opinion forth on the issue, well, every single one of them are against wildfires. You know, I, I do hate to sound woeful notes when it comes to politics, but I'm also looking at a, a, a summary here of the state races for the California primary, showing various districts and the, well, these are the districts that are up for grabs. Most of them, you know, are slam dunks for this party or that. But many of the races are actually competitive between the two parties. Or in California's case, between two people in the same party. Because that's how we roll. I, I gotta tell you, the way they draw district lines has to be taken out of the hands of the politicians that benefit from the way the lines are drawn. I'm looking at a map of Assembly District 25. It includes most, but not all, of Fremont. It goes out on the mudflats of San Francisco Bay. Takes a tiny little piece of Santa Clara on the peninsula inside of it. Comes back across north of Alviso, and then includes lots of the East Bay Hills from east of Milpitas almost all the way down to Morgan Hill. Senate District 17 starts south of San Jose, skirts Monterey Bay, takes in Monterey and the Big Sur Coast down to beyond San Luis Obispo, and then goes inland to an area between Highways 101 and I-5. But as for the portion of this geographical territory that looks as though it should include the area east of Carmel, well, it appears that a giant has come along and taken a bite out of it. All right, we've just about used up uh, segment number one today. So uh, as promised, the top of the hour, let's uh, let's go back in time and visit the comedy stylings of Mr. Tom Lear. Here's a song about National Brotherhood Week. Oh, the white folks hate the black folks And the black folks hate the white folks To hate all but the right folks Is an old established rule But during National Brotherhood Week National Brotherhood Week Lena Horn and Sheriff Clark Are dancing cheek to cheek It's fun to eulogize The people you despise As long as you don't let them In your school the poor folks hate the rich folks and the rich folks hate the poor folks all of my folks hate all of your folks it's american as apple pie but during national brotherhood week national brotherhood week new yorkers love the puerto ricans cause it's very chic step up and shake the hand of someone you can't stand you can tolerate him if you try Protestants hate the Catholics, and the Catholics hate the Protestants, and the Hindus hate the Muslims, and everybody hates the Jews, but during National Brotherhood Week, National Brotherhood Week, it's national, everyone smile at one anotherhood week, be nice to people who are inferior to you, it's only for a week, so have no fear, be grateful that it doesn't last all year. (laughs) 
listening to Radio Parallax. Don't go away. <laughs>